0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Can We Improve Management of Overactive Bladder in Long-Term Care? Examining the Role of Beta-3 Adrenergic Agonists. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash QGG 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, I'm Benjamin Brucker from NYU Langone Health in New York City. Welcome to this educational activity on overactive bladder management in long-term care. Thanks for joining me today. We're gonna be asking a question and hopefully gonna be answering, can we improve management of overactive bladder in long-term care? Examining the role of beta-3 adenergic agonists. The goals of this activity are to recognize the scope of burdens that overactive bladder represents in long-term care setting. We hope to understand why and how to screen patients for overactive bladder and distinguish overactive bladder from other urinary conditions. Finally, our hope is that we can implement individually appropriate overactive bladder management plans that are effective and safe for people who may have multiple health concerns. So to begin, can we improve management in overactive bladder treatment for long-term care? So how do we define overactive bladder? Overactive bladder is actually just a clinical diagnosis. It's a clinical diagnosis that's characterized by the presence of bothersome urinary symptoms, with a hallmark symptom being urinary urgency. The International Continent Society defines urinary urgency as a sudden, compelling desire to pass urine, which is difficult to defer. There are patients with overactive bladder that usually have urinary frequency and nocturia. Frequency is usually defined as seven or more voids a day, and nocturia is a urination that is preceded and then followed by sleep. In addition to frequency, urgency, and nocturia, there are patients that will have urinary urgency that results in incontinence. And this is sometimes called overactive bladder wet. Patients that just have the urgency and frequency symptoms without urgency urinary incontinence can be defined as overactive bladder dry. The reality of it is, this is probably the same physiology, and the distinction is useful for studies and for talking about patients, but if we take an overactive bladder dry patient and we avoid or prevent them from accessing a toilet, who knows whether they'll actually have a wetting episode? Certainly, there are some differences where women are a bit more likely to have overactive bladder wet than overactive bladder dry, but these conditions can affect both men and women. The other thing that's important when understanding overactive bladder is it's a clinical diagnosis, and there are some diagnoses that we usually need to exclude. So the first is urinary tract infection, and then we want to avoid any other obvious pathology, such as a neurogenic bladder or someone that has a significant advanced degree of prolapse. So how common is overactive bladder? Prevalence estimate ranges from about 10% to 40% in women and somewhere between 7 and 27% in men. In talking with patients about overactive bladder, I usually give them the number that 1 in 6 men and women may have overactive bladder. So a very common condition. Depending on the definition, the population, and methodology, you can understand how the different prevalence and incidence will actually vary considerably. If we look at some of the larger epidemiologic studies, we can see in the Nobel studies, the rates were fairly similar, about 16 percent in both men and women. The EpiLUT study and the OAB poll study also showed these numbers perhaps a little bit higher, depending on whether these overactive bladder symptoms or lower urinary tract symptoms are sometimes occurring or more often occurring. Looking further at overactive bladder and how common this condition is, we see the NOBLE study findings indicate that the overall prevalence is comparable in men and women. With men, however, it's often difficult to give the diagnosis because as clinicians or healthcare providers, we know that there's a condition called BPH or an enlarged benign prostatic hypertrophy, that can give similar symptoms. It is important to distinguish the two, but I think too often we assume that men don't have overactive bladder, even though they really do, because we blame it on BPH. There are some simple things that we can do to ensure that we assess men to see if they do have BPH. But as we get into some of the treatment later on, we'll realize that sometimes patients that are treated for BPH still have persistence of overactive bladder symptoms that require treatment. There's large claim data, again, showing the potential under-treatment of overactive bladder and the misdirection of therapy for men because they have a combination. And as we talk about lower urinary tract symptoms or LUTs, I'm going to sometimes refer to things as storage symptoms, and that refers to the frequency urgency type symptoms, nocturia type symptoms, even urgency incontinence, meaning we're not able to hold the urine appropriately, and voiding symptoms, which is how the urine comes out of the bladder. So these would be things like a slow stream or an interrelation, Interrupted stream or straining to void. We do know that the prevalence increases with age, which becomes important when we're talking about long-term care facilities. More than half of the women age 40 to 45 and more than 85% of women in the 70 to 75 year range report symptoms of overactive bladder. So it's a condition that can affect both men and women of all age ranges, but certainly the prevalence increases as people age. Very often when we start dealing with conditions like lower urinary tract symptoms or incontinence, we hear people referring to it as a normal part of aging. And just because it's more common as people age doesn't mean that it's something that we have to accept, but it's really something that we should be aware of and deal with. Overactive bladder is not just a nuisance, but really does have some major health-related consequences. There are some negative effects that have been seen and published on in terms of self-esteem, personal relationships, sexuality, and sense of health. There are patients that sometimes end up staying home because they're afraid of their symptoms, and they may not know where a bathroom is, or they may not know what to do when they have a wedding episode. We know that sleep can be disrupted by overactive bladder. About 40% of women with overactive bladder report that it interferes with daily activities. Upwards of 12% of patients stayed home because of symptoms they were having. 40% or nearly 40% of patients decreased physical activity because of this. And then patients start to have issues with weight gain because of the inability to exercise. In addition to the health related adverse outcomes that occur from overactive bladder, we know that overactive bladder has a substantial cost. Cost accelerates when overactive bladder is combined with comorbid conditions such as dementia, depression, type two diabetes, hypertension, and osteoporosis. A claims-based study of over 100 Thousand pairs of patients with chronic conditions with or without overactive bladder found that the patients with overactive bladder had a health care cost that was about two and a half times those similar patients without overactive bladder. The synergy of overactive bladder and comorbidities can add somewhere between 95 and close to $600 per patient per month to health care costs. That doesn't even include necessarily some of the other costs associated when we're dealing with it on a patient basis, but there are costs to needing more laundry, there are costs to needing pads, costs to cleaning, as well as the other health-related costs down the road, again, if there are things like skin breakdown or incontinence, dermatitis, etc., What about overactive bladder in nursing homes? As many as 50 to 70% of nursing home residents have urinary incontinence, and urinary incontinence may be overactive bladder related. We already talked about how frequent overactive bladder is, and a large proportion of patients with overactive bladder have urgency incontinence, which can be one of the causes of urinary incontinence. Even if a patient doesn't necessarily think they have urgency incontinence, you can imagine if mobility is an issue and they're having a lot of frequency of urination, there may not be someone always around to help them get to the bathroom as frequently as they'd like, and that can result in accidents as well. In a claims-based study, nursing home residents with overactive bladder and or urinary incontinence had a higher prevalence of depression, CVA, dementia, compared with those with urinary incontinence without overactive bladder. In the year 2000, direct cost of overactive bladder in nursing home was estimated to be $3.5 billion a year. This includes the diagnosis, treatment, routine care, and health-related consequences, such as falls, skin conditions, and urinary tract infections. What about the perspective from directors of nursing in long-term care facilities with patients with overactive bladder? This was a web-based survey of about 70 directors of nursing representing U.S. facilities with a mean of about 115 residents. And the findings include that many patients that are over the age of 65 lack control of bladder function, and almost all the patients, nearly 90% of patients or residents, actually needed assistance with toileting. The caregiver burden is quite profound. I think if you consider the fact that someone's job is busy enough, and now another task that they're tasked with is needing to help toilet patients, clean patients, etc., you can imagine the burnout that staff can have, and it can increase staff turnover, especially among CNAs. CNAs, on average, spend about half of their shift managing incontinence, including an average of 37 incontinence products and assisting with 25.5 toileting episodes. Two are the patients where this is really representing a pathologic condition and treatment may actually be helpful. Some of the things like normal urination, we may not be able to make go away with the medication, but certainly if someone's having incontinence episodes or an excessive number of urinations, that's where we can perhaps improve upon the condition. If we look at falls that occur in long-term care facilities, about 36% of falls that occur are related to toileting. We know that when there is a fall, there are going to be meetings that go on, documentation, changes in care, and so this really can be quite impactful, let alone things like fractures, etc. In addition, urinary tract infections may be more common in patients that are having incontinence. And if you think about a wet diaper, that looks quite similar to a petri dish. So if a patient's sitting in a wet diaper and they're getting recurrent urinary tract infections, one of the things as a urologist we look to do is say, hey, can we improve upon the incontinence? And pressure ulcers is another tremendously impactful consequence of incontinence in patients with lack of mobility. We know that it can be a CMS quality measure, but also can be costly to healthcare systems, costly to patients, and potentially even devastating. Monthly cost of incontinence products average upwards of $5,000 per facility, and this was rated relatively highly as a cost by directors of nursing. Laundry is another cost to consider, and again, not all the laundry that's done is related to urinary incontinence, but if we consider things that we can try to improve upon, identifying these patients with this condition of overactive bladder can be quite impactful. So what are the opportunities to improve upon? I think the first thing that I want to impart is we have to recognize and then try to effectively address overactive bladder. And I think that this can not only improve quality of life for the patients, but they'll have better outcomes and satisfaction. As a result of identifying these patients and possibly treating these patients, we're going to reduce the risk of falls. We're going to reduce the skin irritation, urinary tract infections, etc. cetera. We know that the staff is quite burdened by incontinence and frequent toileting in terms of not only their, the staff's well being, but also the time and cost. And I think that if we look to improve all aspects of long-term care facilities, our aim is really about the patient experience. We want to make sure that patient outcomes are ideal, the clinician experience, and the cost of care. So when it comes to urinary incontinence in long-term care facilities, I think this is something that as a urologist I'm very clearly passionate about, but it really does take the entire team in order to work through these problems. I think that there are people that may not necessarily have medical training that can identify patients that are having... having incontinence, leakage, or urgency, that strong, compelling desire to get to the bathroom. And then there are going to be healthcare providers that can look for and identify potential contributing factors to incontinence in general. And then as docs or clinicians, APPs, NPs, nurse practitioners, being familiar with some of the treatments and some of the things that we can actually do to improve upon patients, we can really have a tremendous positive impact. So what about routine overactive bladder screening and timely diagnosis in long-term care facilities? The next section we're gonna talk about how we can actually screen patients and then get them hopefully diagnosed appropriately. When we talk about the diagnosis of overactive bladder, I think for some, it can be a little bit intimidating, those that don't know what overactive bladder is. But as we mentioned, this is a condition that is really quite easy to diagnose because it is something that is going to be a clinical diagnosis. There's not a special lab test or a special X-ray test that's needed in order to identify overactive bladder. So what do we need to diagnose overactive bladder according to the American Urologic Association and SU, a society that I'm a member of that really has a big focus on incontinence and the treatment of incontinence and bladder issues. The requirement is really a careful history. We're going to be asking questions, talking to patients or family members about their clinical scenario a physical exam fairly straightforward there are going to be things that we find out on a primary care physical exam that may need to be addressed before we give the diagnosis of overactive bladder and then there's a urine analysis and those are really the basic tenets of the diagnosis there are some additional testing that we often talk about like ensuring the bladder is emptying because we don't want to be fooled by an overflow incontinence situation where a patient is actually having incontinence we're not sure why they're having Having incontinence and it turns out it's because the bladder is not emptying so again overactive bladder is a storage symptom it's not necessarily an issue with bladder emptying or the actual active urination Why do we do the physical exam? We're looking for things like edema or massive swelling in the legs. That's going to contribute possibly to frequent urination. As primary care providers, you may be looking for signs of heart failure, maybe assessing for things like diabetes. So I don't want you to think that every patient that has frequent urination has overactive bladder. It's a little easier for me as a urologist to make the diagnosis because primary care geriatricians have made the initial assessment, but I don't think a lot of special training is needed after the basic things have been ruled out. In the urine analysis, we're looking and trying to make sure that there's not a urinary tract infection and certainly want to make sure that there's no signs of of blood in the urine that may be more indicative of an oncologic process, something like bladder cancer. So in terms of the history, let's delve a little deeper. We want to ask about storage symptoms and bladder emptying. A sense of urgency can be subjective. Ask patients if they have trouble getting to the toilet in time. I think what we need to do sometimes in talking with patients, especially older patients or patients with mobility issues, is we need to assume that they have adequate mobility. So if a patient is not able to get to the toilet based on a lower extremity weakness, that's not going to necessarily mean that they're having urgency or incontinence because of a bladder issue. But what I'll often do to patients is they'll say, look, let's assume that you can get up and go to the toilet as quickly as you'd like. Do you think you'd be able to actually toilet successfully? Or does the urge come on so suddenly that you can't make it to the bathroom in time? And that's how I'll try to assess whether it is urgency or mobility, because just if someone's having a mobility issue doesn't mean they may not also have an overactive bladder. And in fact, the impact may be more profound. We talk about fluid intake when we're taking a history. How much are they drinking? Are they drinking caffeine? We know things like alcohol, carbonation are all going to be contributors to frequent urination and potentially be more irritating. And again, I don't think that if you have five cups of coffee, that necessarily means that you're going to have urinary incontinence. But if you cut the five cups of coffee back down to maybe one cup of coffee, and now the urgency, frequency, and leakage are better, that's one of the ways that we can actually treat the overactive bladder. But there are patients that have overactive, overactive bladder that drink caffeine, and then they reduce the caffeine, they still have overactive bladder. I'm always asked about, well, what about decaf? Decaf, I think, is usually better than caffeine, but if you have enough decaf, there may be irritation that occurs. And there was one study that I'll often quote to patients, about 150 milligrams of caffeine is what we use as a threshold, so that one cup of coffee probably gets you pretty close to that threshold. You can't stop caffeine or carbonation cold turkey, so this is something we usually work with patients to do gradually over time. Are there certain activities that patients are not doing because of their overactive bladder? I think it's also important to sometimes assess how the overactive bladder is affecting them. Maybe they're not going to groups or they're not leaving their room because they're concerned about incontinence and leakage. And certainly while this is being evaluated, I think probably in long-term care facilities maybe better than in our offices. We'll talk to patients about protective undergarments and things that they can do to help utilize and to temporize this while we're trying to get an appropriate diagnosis and then ultimately treat. In addition to talking to patients and looking for signs of incontinence, smells of incontinence, and maybe other health-related issues that might relate to incontinence or overactive bladder, there are some validated screening tools, and we use these in lots of populations. There's an overactive bladder questionnaire designed for the use in clinical studies, and this is an eight-item questionnaire look, it's fairly straightforward when you look. We have, are you urinating frequently during daytime hours, uncomfortable urge to urinate, little or no warning, loss of urine, et cetera. But if we boil it down and we say, look, I I don't necessarily have the time to ask eight questions or 16 or 64 questions. If we ask some simple questions about frequent urination during the daytime, urgency, or needing to urinate with little or no warning, and any urine loss with a strong desire to urinate, that can help focus us on the diagnosis of overactive bladder. There are other validated screening tools in addition to the OAB V8 and the OAB V3, the three-item questionnaire. And one of the tools that may also illustrate the point of in some ways the ease of this and some of the ideas with which how your facility or facilities that you work with can help hone in is a bladder control assessment questionnaire. And the questions are fairly simple related to, again, the symptoms patients are having really related to problems going to the bathroom too frequently or urgency or leakage And then additionally, which has also been very important when we're treating patients in lower urinary tract symptoms, is bother. And the question to ask, is it bothering? So then we can come up with a symptom score and a bother score, and it can really help us hone in. I think we would also highlight some of the red flag things we need to talk to patients about, which is the blood in the urine, which is not something you'd expect to see from urgency incontinence or overactive bladder pain on urination. Again, maybe more indicative of a voiding phase issue, some other process, possibly even a urinary tract infection if they're having dysuria, and then difficulty passing the urine. I had mentioned before the physical exam, certainly a physical exam to try to palpate the bladder or feel the bladder can be all we need to do to make sure that a patient's not in retention. We do have ultrasound machines very frequently in facilities like hospitals and doctor's offices, and depending on the care facility, again, if this is not available, sometimes even just a a simple renal bladder ultrasound can help us rule out some of the other major causes of urinary incontinence. In addition to the symptoms the patient's having and how it's affecting them, we do want to make sure that we review other medications and comorbidities that may contribute to incontinence and bladder function. So for example, there are medications like diuretics that people utilize that increase urine production. When you increase urine production, there's going to be a chance that the bladder is more irritable and perhaps leaks and frequent urination is going to be greater. There are medications that are alpha adrenergic agonists that might increase sphincter tone. There are other medications that might decrease sphincter tone. There are ACE inhibitors that are sometimes contributing to things like a chronic cough. And not all leakage is necessarily overactive bladder. There are some patients that have leakage related to stress incontinence. And so the coughing may be something that if we can improve upon, their stress incontinence or the leakage with coughing can improve. There are some people whose overactive bladder spasms are triggered by things like coughing. And so getting a cough under control from a medication would be something that you could actually assess. There are other medications, narcotic medications and other sedating medications that can affect bladder contractility. Unfortunately, issues with bladder contractility do get more common as patients get older. And so if we take a patient with an underactive bladder and then we add things like certain antidepressants or calcium channel blockers, now all of a sudden the bladder contractility decreases. What does that mean for us? That means that their bladders are not emptying as well, and that's going to give other urinary symptoms. There are going to be medications that people take that also can contribute to frequent urination. Things like some of the new diabetic medications really quite clearly state that because the sugar is going to be passing in the urine, frequent urination may be more common. There are a lot of comorbid conditions that associate with overactive bladder. And as a clinician, we want to be aware whether patients have these conditions as it may be contributing negatively to their urinary symptoms. A patient with a neurologic condition such as Parkinson's disease may actually have urinary urgency, urgency incontinence. Though we'd call that condition a neurogenic overactive bladder, really the signs and symptoms are quite similar. And sometimes by being able to identify these other conditions, it may hone us into where we need to focus. There are other general medical conditions such as diabetes or heart failure sleep apnea that can contribute to frequent urination at nighttime, that should all be assessed as well. Dementia can be a tricky one, lots of reasons for dementia, but it's not uncommon for us to consider treating patients along the overactive bladder pathway or different therapies for overactive bladder if they have dementia and they also have urinary frequency, urgency, incontinence, maybe a little bit more challenging to treat because of some of the difficulty in patients knowing when to toilet, how to appropriately toilet or to care for themselves in general, but nevertheless, it's something that in long-term care facilities is actually quite prevalent and can really associate with some of the urinary symptoms we're talking about. The physical examination should include an abdominal examination and a genital urinary examination with rectal exam. And we really want to assess for things like lower extremity edema. Rectal exam is useful to rule out things like fecal impaction or significant constipation. And the abdominal and genital exam might tip us off to something like retention episode or other issues with the abdominal distension that would need to be assessed for. The urine analysis is useful to rule out urinary tract infection and hematuria. There are some additional steps that some patients may need in order to validate the diagnosis, and really, again, sometimes this is a diagnosis where we're needing to exclude other conditions. So, for example, a positive urine analysis should lead us to actually send a urine culture, or if a patient's having considerable dysuria or burning with urination, we may want to actually send a culture off. Postvoid residual, I think, in patients that have a suspicion for incomplete bladder emptying, either because of voiding phases, avoiding phase ab normality, or they have really obstructive symptoms, history of anti-incontinence surgeries, prostatic surgeries, or other neurologic conditions that are known to affect how the bladder empties. Post-void residuals can be done either with a small catheter to drain the bladder, a bladder scanner, sometimes with a physical exam. And very often when those things are not available, even getting something like a routine ultrasound, both pre- and post-void, can be quite useful. Bladder diaries I find very onerous to to patients to fill out, but very helpful in those that are willing and able. In some ways, I think anyone that's dealing with issues with frequent urination and incontinence should really do an intake assessment to know what they're drinking, how they're drinking, and then ultimately wanting to know how they're urinating, when they're urinating. may not be as important for every patient to do, but I think sometimes we can screen and identify patients that might actually benefit from conservative things like diet modification. It's also useful to educate patients, and in most of the clinical trials that we do for overactive bladder drugs, even just doing the diary alone has a therapeutic benefit. Obviously, it takes a willing party and someone that's cognitively able to do this, but it can be useful. And some patients that are in a little bit more of an environment where they can be prompted and reminded may benefit tremendously. So what's the differential diagnosis? We do know that there are lots of conditions that contribute to frequency of urination and incontinence, but there are some other things that we look for. Uh, Nocturnal polyuria and overproduction of urine at nighttime. Polydipsia, meaning people drinking too much. Diabetes, as I had mentioned, but really diabetes insipidus, where we're really not concentrating urine appropriately, so we're making a lot of urine because of that. Urinary tract infections, conditions that are less common in an older long-term care facility population like interstitial cystitis, we talked about urinary retention, and then something like general urinary symptoms of menopause, which used to be referred to as atrophic vaginitis. And some of these things can contribute and actually treatment of some of these conditions might actually have a big positive impact. The American Urogynecologic Society, when they we're dealing with issues with incontinence, uses a mnemonic that I find helpful called diapers. And it's really looking for some of the things that can contribute to incontinence. This little checklist you can go through, we talk about delirium, infections, atrophic vaginitis, pharmaceuticals, are there drugs that are contributing negatively, psychological issues, again, some of the cognitive things that we talk about as well, excessive urine output, maybe because of medications or other conditions, reduced mobility, and then stool impaction. And I can't emphasize enough how important a regular bowel regimen and regular bowel movements are not only to reduce the burden of fecal incontinence and constipation, but also because the bowel and the bladder are so closely related. So the initial workup of the uncomplicated patient, we don't necessarily need to have a patient have a urodynamic or cystoscopy or a renal bladder ultrasound. So again, if a patient's seeing me or I'm seeing a patient in a long-term care center, I don't need to do urodynamics to make the diagnosis. And I think many years ago, a lot of care providers were apprehensive to treat it because they were not doing these things. If you have a patient that has a considerable history of prostate issues and issues related to urination, it's not to say urodynamics can't be done. But a complicated patient or a refractory patient, meaning someone where we've done some diet modification or maybe even used medication and they're not getting better, that's when we can add additional tests and things like cystoscopy and neurodynamics can be useful. I'd now like to talk about safe and efficacious treatment of overactive bladder in elderly patients with beta-3 adenergic agonists. When we talk about overactive bladder, there are really like many things is a stepwise approach that we take. And a lot of these steps start with less invasive and perhaps more universal suggestions. And then as we go forward, we deal with some more of the pharmacotherapy and then even specialized care. Weight loss is something that I think gets underplayed in many of the urology and urogynecology clinics, but we're trying to do a better job talking to patients about this. Excessive weight can be an issue for urinary incontinence all type, but also excessive weight does contribute to overactive bladder. Dietary and fluid management, this is something that certainly can be discussed in a long-term care setting, but limiting caffeine consumption, certainly if a patient at certain points of the day may not have as much help around or maybe wanting to sleep better through the night, shouldn't be drinking large amount of fluid or large amount of caffeine prior to bedtime. In terms of other things that we like to do to try to improve upon bladder function in general, it's telling patients to stop smoking. We know that smoking is a leading contributor to bladder cancer, but in addition, the toxins and chemicals that thought to be linked to bladder cancer are irritating to the lining of the bladder and contribute negatively frequency, urgency, and maybe even urinary incontinence. I had mentioned before bowel and bowel movements, fecal impaction and constipation are something that we really try to avoid. We know that timed voiding can be quite effective and setting an alarm or setting a clock or having a reminder to urinate maybe before that strong, compelling desire or urgency comes so patients can empty their bladder when it's good for them. Bladder training is something else that we talk a lot about in terms of the conservative or behavioral therapies. And what bladder training is, is teaching patients to identify the urgency and trying to suppress. This could include things like tightening pelvic floor muscles, something called a quick flick, where we can tighten pelvic floor muscles a few times rapidly, and that urgency may die down. We also know that there are things like distraction that can be used in deep breathing type exercises. So if a patient feels an urge and they know that they're not quite quick enough to get to the bathroom, sometimes doing the kegel exercises and trying to distract themselves or think and concentrate on something can actually prevent a leakage episode. Pelvic floor muscle training is something that's also used, and sometimes we use it with biofeedback or physical therapist, but even just simple exercises to tighten the muscles that you would tighten during uh, urination if you needed to stop it. And we tell patients not to actually stop their urinary flow, but to do this tightening exercise maybe a few times in the morning and a few times in the evening. Believe it or not, that reflex that tells them to not have a bladder contraction with repetitive outs of this can be quite useful. The changes that you make in a patient's lifestyle and behavior does require commitment of the patient. It also requires a clinician to help guide them. And we know that this is unfortunately something that can be difficult. Patients can get frustrated. They may not be reminded. And certainly in certain settings, like a long-term care facility, there may be more cognitive issues that patients are having where it's hard to remember some of these. We do know that in long-term care facilities, if we can get patients to ultimately do bladder training, we become a lot less reliant on incontinence products as well as bedding changes, etc. There's some evidence that suggests that initiating drug therapy simultaneously with behavioral therapy may improve outcomes. And though I mentioned we have a stepwise therapy, it doesn't mean that the least invasive or less invasive things like behavior and lifestyle can't be done in conjunction. And very clearly in our guidelines, the idea of starting medication in addition to these conservative treatments is something that we often do. It's hard to tell a patient that, let's say, comes from a long-term care facility to the office or a patient that travels far, you know, don't drink as much fluid and do your Kegel exercises. Often these things are figured out on their own, but we do know the combination of the medical therapy plus these conservative therapies can work more effectively. We know that after the first conservative theories and behavioral therapies, the second line therapy is pharmacotherapy, but not necessarily have to fail step one to get to step two. The goal of therapy is to really reduce the uncontrolled bladder contraction or the spasm that occurs in overactive bladder so that the incontinence can be less. We also know that the therapies reduce things like urgency and frequency, which are some of those things that can be quite bothersome to patients and have a negative impact. Overactive bladder pathophysiology physiology is not necessarily fully understood. We have an idea as to why, but there may be multiple theories or multiple actual causes for detrusor overactivity. In general, however, I think the condition, if we consider that easy definition, again, urgency, frequency, nighttime urination, and urgency incontinence, once we rule things out, maybe the physiology or the underlying pathophysiology may not matter as much because our therapies are similar. And if I'm giving a talk about treatment of incontinence from overactive bladder in patients with neurologic conditions, the discussion is going to be very similar in terms of the tools and therapies that we use. When we talk about pharmacotherapy, I do think it's important to realize how the bladder works, how the bladder functions, and it's an interaction between the central and peripheral nervous system. But what's important to remember in terms of the autonomic nervous system or the nerves that we really don't have control over consciously are both parasympathetic and sympathetic nerves ultimately affect the bladder and contractility and relaxation. Anticholinergic medications, which have often been the mainstay in the past, therapy work by blocking the acetylcholine interacting with the muscarinic receptor in the bladder. A little bit more detail than you might need, but I think when we start talking about some of the pharmacotherapies, laying that foundation will be useful. What the muscarinic receptor does is when you stimulate it, it causes the bladder to contract. So when we block the cholinergic or acetylcholine from stimulating muscarinic receptors, we're blocking a contraction of the bladder. On the other hand, there are beta-3 receptors. And beta-3 receptors have a role to relax the bladder by making the bladder larger and accommodate more urine, improving the storage phase. When we talk about stimulating the beta-3 receptor, we're essentially functionally making the bladder bigger. When we talk about medications, beta-3 adrenergic receptor agonists, we're stimulating that relaxation, but not having an impact on how the bladder contracts and how the bladder empties. We know that there are alpha receptors also in the urethra. Probably a little bit more prevalent in men, but this is the alpha blockers that we use, medications that are used to facilitate bladder emptying. Again, not a lot of data in women, but certainly in some receptors do exist, and sometimes they can be used, again, a little less common. So we know that the parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system both innervate the bladder, and if we were looking at therapies that are going to be, in some ways, a little less deleterious to normal bladder function, facilitating relaxation may be better than blocking contraction of the bladder ladder. As we talk about the two major classes, we have the anti-muscarinic medications, which block the M2 and M3 receptors in the detrusor muscle. And there are a lot of products that are available, oral and transdermal formulations. And then the beta-3 adenergic agonists activate the beta-3 receptor in the detrusor smooth muscle. Some of the things that we'll also talk a little bit about are the off-target effects of these receptors. If we think about side effects of medications, we need to consider where else are muscarinic receptors Unfortunately, there are muscarinic receptors in the brain, in the eye, in salivary glands, and in bowel, and that's where some of the potential side effects may come. Beta adenergic receptors do exist in the heart and lungs, but again, thankfully, the beta 3 receptor we're talking about is really found in a very high prevalence only in the bladder, and a lot of our beta 3 agonists are really quite selective for the stimulation of that bladder receptor with a lot less of the beta 1 and beta 2 off-site stimulation. Let's talk a little bit more about anti muscarinics. There are multiple choices for anti-muscarinics, and the medications include things like darifenacin, phasoteridine, oxybutynin, solifenacin, tolteridine, trospium, and they are going to actually bind multiple sites. As I mentioned, the side effects of these medications are probably due to the stimulation or the blockade of acetylcholine on the other muscarinic receptors throughout the body. So patients get dry eyes, they get constipation. Sometimes it can result in issues related to dry mouth and even cognitive impairment. Impairment. Certainly in a long term care facility or geriatric patients, I get quite concerned about using a medication that has been now at least somewhat associated with cognitive impairment and perhaps increased incidence of things like dementia. If you're going to use an anticholinergic, extended release are probably better and transdermal formulations are probably better with less side effects and dry mouth. And there are some molecules that may be particularly troublesome in terms of the cognitive story, things like oxybutynin, which are the smallest and most easily passing across the blood-brain barrier. But unfortunately, these are the medications that end up being most commonly prescribed, even by urologists, because they end up being the least expensive. We need to really start taking a bigger picture look and realizing, hey, even though it's less expensive, if the patient's cognitive function declines or they get constipation or they start to have other issues, that in fact, it may actually be in the long run more costly for healthcare facilities and healthcare in general. We know that the discontinuation rates of anticholinergics is very high. If we look at this medication, it's shocking because this is a medication that should be helping a patient. It should be making them feel better. But the discontinuation rates are actually higher than when we treat patients with antihypertensive medications. So an antihypertensive medication, you don't feel any better from it necessarily, but you know you should take it. But more patients actually end up stopping these medications. And in a nursing home population, close to 70% discontinued treatment before discharge. it doesn't matter which medication you're using, which formulation, discontinuation rates for anticholinergics are high in spite of our efforts. We do know that there are some limitations in the use of anticholinergic, for example, patients with narrow angle glaucoma. It's really a contraindication, supraventricular tachycardia, because of some of the issues with potential for cardiac effects of antimuscarinic and people that have issues with gastric emptying because just the same way it causes the bladder to not be able to squeeze, similar effect can be had on the GI tract and motility. There are lots of other medications that have anticholinergic properties, muscle relaxants, antidepressants, antipsychotics, and it's important to realize that there is a cumulative effect. It is to the point where the Geriatric Society Beer's criteria mentions that cumulative exposure to anticholinergic drugs is associated with an increased risk of fall, delirium, dementia, even in younger adults. So consider the total anticholinergic burden. And a lot of the data that this came from was across the board, but bladder medications were included in many of the studies that helped the geriatric society come to this conclusion, which is if you had a choice, I personally wouldn't be prescribing anti It's not to say that we don't, and sometimes it is in fact needed. But again, if you said, look, all things considered from an efficacy and side effect profile, we should really be making a decision based on that. I think that some of the other newer medications of the beta-3 agonists seem to be safer and just as effective, if not more effective. There are multiple studies that have actually found evidence of anticholinergic burden and the potential ill effects on cognitive impairment in patients. I do think if you consider, for example, the patients that are over the age of 65, this is really maybe a more at-risk group. And if we look at Medicare claims data and prescriptions filled for overactive bladder, unfortunately, we really haven't moved the needle all that much, so there's lots of room for improvement. In 2013, anticholinergic represented 98% of the 30-day refills for overactive bladder prescriptions, and several years later, in 2019, anticholinergic still comprise the majority of prescriptions in this cohort. So we do know that there's an increase in the number of beta-3 agonists that are prescribed, but I think that we really have quite a bit more room to improve. And if we said to a panel of expert urologists, if you had a choice of which medication to prescribe in an over 65-year-old patient, maybe even a long-term care facility, based on some of the data about the potential side effects, cognitive issues, I think most of those experts, if not all of those experts, I'd go out on a limb, would say that beta-3 agonists are really more appropriate in this age range and patient population. We know it's also particularly troublesome in patients that do have already cognitive issues and patients that are already taking multiple medications that can affect cognition and contribute to cholinergic burden. What about the beta-3 adenergic agonist? If we consider the fact that the Side effects of the medications, the anticholinergic medications, are really because of the stimulation of the M receptors. We're now dealing with a totally different class. And Mirabegron was actually the first approved beta 3 adenergic agonist, and it was improved in 2012. Tolerability was proven in multiple studies, phase 3 and phase 4. And what it did was it decreased frequency, decreased significantly and in meaningful incontinence episodes, and improvement in quality. Quality of life scores, something that we look at very frequently in addition to the urinary endpoints, we want to see that quality of life improves. The medication is prescribed in a dose escalation. There's a 25 milligram dose and a 50 milligram tablet. And there is a warning on Mirabegron that it's associated with elevation in blood pressure. And it does suggest in the package insert that the periodic blood pressure checks are done. We should not use this medication in patients with severe uncontrolled hypertension. These are things that, again, we may choose to listen to or not listen to. And certainly any drug, again, can be used safely. And it's not to say that every patient that takes Mirabegron has an uncontrolled hypertensive issue. But nevertheless, I think that when you have a warning like this, we do see patients have concerns. And it certainly gives clinicians pause to say, gosh, is this really a drug that's better or safer? Or am I just really deciding between the lesser of two evils? Am I trading a cognitive issue now for a hypertensive issue? Again, can be used safely, relatively safe, but FDA warning does talk about the hypertension and does talk about blood pressure checks periodically. The other thing we talk about is the metabolism of mirabegron, and this is a CYP2D6 inhibitor. We know that patients with overactive bladder are sometimes upwards of 12 medications, and many of these medications, I think the number is close to 80% of these medications have drug metabolism in this liver enzyme CYP2D6. In general, mirabegron most common adverse events are going to be hypertension, nasopharyngitis, UTI, and headache. I had showed you a slide about the discontinuation rates of anticholinergic medications. And I'd love to tell you that mirabegron was perfect and patients didn't stop the medication, but patients do stop mirabegron. Thankfully, it's less than anticholinergics. But what also factors into whether people stay on medications, don't stay on medications, is how they're gonna respond. And this was actually a post-hoc analysis from clinical trial looking at, can we predict individual treatment response to mirabegron? I think it is important that we set realistic expectations. Overactive bladder is not a curable condition, and it doesn't mean that everything is going to go away, but we can realize that based on this data, better response is seen in patients that have more urgency episodes at baseline, that had mixed stress and urgency incontinence, and patients that had more urgency episodes per day. Lower response rate was seen with patients that had prior use of multiple overactive bladder medications, a higher BMI, and a duration of overactive bladder greater than a year. Also, Additionally, if they had concomitant use of BPH medication or baseline incontinence, they had a lower response rate. And I don't think any of these are really surprising. Very often, patients that have been tried on numerous medications are patients that didn't get better with medications, so they're patients that may not do well with Mirabegron. This is not a cure-all per se, but it is a medication that can be used. It's not going to necessarily work better than another drug, but perhaps the side effect profile and the other factors that make us decide one medication from the other may be more more favorable. So we have Mirabagron approved, as I mentioned, in 2012, and then Vibegron is the second beta 3 agonist to market, FDA approved in 2020. And it was with a lot of excitement that we were looking at the EMPOWER trial because we wanted to see in the second drug in this class, was it quite similar or was it very different? The first thing that I would actually highlight is the dose administration. This is a drug that only requires one dose, 75 milligram tablet. The drug came to market and the drug is actually crushable, so the drug can be crushed up and given with applesauce, which is another thing that was quite interesting and I think exciting, especially for those of us that treat patients that may have other chronic conditions that affect their ability to take pills, etc. This drug did meet its statistical significant improvement in urinary frequency, but they also looked at the endpoint of urgency and additionally urgency incontinence episodes, which was all, I think, very in some ways expected. I think what was actually a little bit less expected was the relative lack of other warnings for this drug and highlighting that this drug does not have a blood pressure warning does not mention anything about dose escalation or dose titration and doesn't really say anything about uncontrolled hypertension The other thing that actually I think probably does help set Vibegron apart from Mirabegron, just a tale of the tapes, is that this drug is not induce or inhibit CYP2D6. And we had talked about liver enzymes and how important they are to try to predict drug-drug interactions or medications being more higher levels or lower levels. And the fact is Vibegron does not have that mentioned we know that patients with the drug did improve, improvement in quality of life as well as sleep and symptom bother and again not that this was a study that was powered for separation from tolteridine but tolteridine was the active control in the empower trial and then the extension trial and it does actually at least empirically look like the drug outperformed tolteridine certainly again tolteridine there to see hey what are the side effects? And we can talk about that, but side effects obviously with and beta-3 were much less and therefore more tolerability than a medication that had been traditionally prescribed an anticholinergic. We have now ongoing recruitment for a phase four trial, an open-label prospective study to assess the post-treatment satisfaction, quality of life, and health care resource utilization. What we're looking at now is patients that have been previously treated with anticholinergics, mirabegron, or combination therapy, and now treating them with vibegron. And what we're looking at is to see mean improvement in satisfaction, assessment and improvement in overactive bladder score and then we'll look at some secondary endpoints. The exploratory endpoints are going to be about adherence and persistence and I know that as a study site we actually just got word that we're close to being done with enrollment so I would imagine we'll have some more data for you about how Vibe background really works in the real world. We talked about cardiovascular risks before. Anticholinergics are known to prolong QT segment and can elevate heart rate. And that's something that gives you some pause in patients that may have a higher incidence of issues related to cardiac problems and other drugs that may do this as well. We know that beta 3 adenergic receptors are express, expressed in the detrusor smooth muscle and expressed in cardiac tissue. And that's where there was a concern about potential issues off site for beta 3 agonists in general. Mirror is associated with elevation and heart rate. Again, clinically, we may not see it all that much, but these are big populations treated and these little changes may be impactful. But in the EMPOWER trial, Vibegron demonstrated hypertension rates that were similar to placebo and there were no heart rate concerns. Because of the issues with blood pressure in the first beta-3 agonist to market with Mirabegron, I think when we saw the results for Vibegron and in the pivotal trial did not see any blood pressure questions, we were all very excited. But let's look a little deeper, and I think we're really quite enthusiastic about Vibegron because we have more data. And there was an ambulatory blood pressure study looking at over 200 patients that were randomized to Vibegron or placebo. Close to 40% of the treatment group, meaning the Vibegron group, actually had pre-existing hypertension, and that number was only 30% in the placebo group. What this means is when we go into the trial, we're a little bit nervous that the treatment group or the Vibegron group might actually have worsening hypertension. Primary endpoint was going to be changed from baseline in mean daytime ambulatory blood pressure systolic. Secondary endpoints were looked at as well. But in conclusion, there was no statistically significant or clinically relevant effect on blood pressure or heart rate in Vibegron versus placebo, regardless of the baseline hypertension status. So this gives us a lot of confidence to think that even in this population that might be set up to show, hey, more pre-existing hypertension in the group that's getting Vibegron, where we might not know if there's an effect, even there really ends up being quite unremarkable when we compare the placebo group to the active drug. The question's always asked about head-to-head comparisons, and we don't necessarily always have great head-to-head data, but I do want to share with you a prospective randomized crossover study in 80 patients with overactive bladder treatment naive, women over the age of 50, to compare the efficacy and safety of these two drugs, Mirabegron and Vibegron. About 40 patients used Mirabegron 50 for eight weeks. Again, that's the higher dose of the Mirabegron, followed by Vibegron 50 for eight weeks, And then 41 patients use the drug in the opposite order. We looked at baseline eight week and 12 week overactive bladder scores, frequency volume chart. And the result of the safety and efficacy parameters was actually fairly similar. But it did turn out when you ask patients their preference, 26% 26% of patients actually chose Mirabagron, and about 58% of patients showed Bibegron, with 16% really not having any preference. So again, I don't have an efficacy or safety parameter specifically in this study, but certainly patient satisfaction is something as a urologist that treats lower urinary tract symptoms is very important, and it does give you at least a little bit of head-to-head data. Again, just take it for what it's worth. There are patients that are going to maybe not do well with Any one therapy and are going to need combinations of therapy. So, if we look at combination of therapy, sometimes we mentioned before behavioral therapy and drug therapy because they're going to be using different mechanisms of action. The same way that we could consider using different oral therapies or transdermal therapies that also have different mechanisms of action. So, we can both use things for the muscarinic receptors and the beta 3 adenergic receptors, and perhaps those patients that are a bit more refractory. May benefit. In fact, in 2019, Sufu and AUA guidelines states that clinicians may consider a combination with anti-muscarinics and beta 3 agonists for patients refractory to monotherapy with either. So I know that a lot of folks that are overactive bladder enthusiasts like myself, if we're going down the medication pathway, we'll start with the beta-3 receptor agonist. And then if a patient is not at their goal, or we think we can get them better, we'll then add another therapy with an anticholinergic. Trial evidence supports improved efficacy of certain drug combinations over monotherapy with either drug with no significant safety concerns. Let's look a little deeper at the data behind this combination therapy. There are a couple of studies that actually we'll look at, and if you're a prescriber, you wanna make sure that there's not going to be any safety concerns, and I also wanna know what therapies I should ultimately use. Drawing your attention to this study, which is looking at sofenison and mirror background versus solifenison alone, what you'll see is sofenin five milligrams does underperform sofenin ten milligrams. But if we look at the combination of therapy, we can see that it actually outperforms the high solifenicin treatment group. And so a lot of the times when I'm adding medications, if we think back to the idea of trying to reduce the cholinergic burden, if I can use a beta-3 agonist and then add a low dose of the solifenicin, that's really my preferred method of trying to reduce the symptoms of overactive bladder. If we look at safety data from this trial, you can see that there's really not anything that we see that stands out in the combination group that you'd expect all that different than just either drug taking them together. So certainly there are things like, again, dry mouth that are going to likely be driven by the cholinergic medication. And if you look at the five milligram dose in combination of dry mouth and the five milligram in the combination, you can see that the rates are fairly similar. When we start to go up to the high dose of solifenicin and anticholinergic, that's when we start to really get a high rate of dry mouth. And I think that's pretty similar throughout. Are there other therapies that we can look forward to for the treatment of overactive bladder? Really one of the first therapies in gene therapy is related to Euro 902, which is a gene therapy administered by interdirector injection by cystoscopy under local anesthesia. And in this study, both doses were associated with reductions from baseline of daily micturition, urgency episodes, and urgency incontinence episodes starting as early as two weeks, persisting through 48 weeks. And in, uh, again, very promising finding, the most common adverse events were actually likely related, I think, to the procedure itself, things like hematuria and urinary tract infection, which are not uncommon from a bladder-based injection therapy. So... I'd like to summarize and give you a couple of takeaway messages. Overactive bladder is a syndrome with urinary urgency as the core symptom. It often is associated with daytime frequency, nocturne and urgency incontinent. It affects both men and women, and though the symptoms in men may often be mistaken for BPH, it can affect men as well. The initial assessment of an uncomplicated patient really only requires an astute history-taking, physical exam, urine analysis, and again, as the condition does get more prevalent with aging and patients accumulate comorbidities, there are things that are really unique to the long-term care population, polypharmacy concerns that ultimately affect treatment decisions and things like cognitive concerns, higher incidences of hypertension, et cetera. Beta-3 adrenergic agonist receptors are really the newest class of overactive bladder medications, and I think that the efficacy is there without some of the drawbacks or side effects of what we had traditionally used, anti And certainly there may be some difference that help you distinguish between the two different agents within the beta-3 agonist. Very clearly, beta-3 seems to be a little bit better in terms of persistence adherence and avoiding adverse effects overall. And then within the beta-3 category, there are some little differences between Mirror Begron and Vibegron, and we talked about some of those. Hopefully you learned a little bit or a lot about overactive bladder, inspired you to start screening patients more effectively, or if you're screening patients, really dive a little deeper into the bother that this condition can have. Start asking the questions that are tough to answer, which is how is this condition maybe negatively infecting patients and also affecting costs and cost of healthcare? And how can we more effectively take care of patients in a safer manner as possible? Thank you for participating in this educational activity. I hope you find it useful in your practice. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash QGG 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Eurovent Sciences Incorporated.